check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, it's Anna Geiger from The Measured Mom. And in today's episode, I got to speak with Dr. Pam Kastner. She is an expert in many things, as you'll learn by hearing her incredible bio. But one thing she's especially interested in these days is spelling. So we talk a lot about the foundations for English spelling, and then we get into the power of a spelling inventory. So we'll be talking about that. And we'll also learn more about Patton, which is the organization she works for and which offers a wonderful free conference every two years. And this year's conference is coming up. So enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Kastner. Thank you, Anna. So such an honor to be here. So people that are familiar with the science of reading have heard of your legendary wakelets, the Pam Kastner wakelets, and you have so many resources in there that you've curated for teachers and, and people that want to learn more about the science of reading. But I know that there's much more to you than your wakelets. You have a long history of educator, being an educator. So can you walk us through how you became a teacher and what you're doing now? Sure. Um, like um, many educators, um, our journey probably began in the elementary classroom with an amazing teacher or another teacher on the, on the road to our education. So mine really began as, began in second grade with Miss Swanson. So she was absolutely just an amazing um, teacher. And I have always wanted to be a teacher ever since I was a little girl. So I was very fortunate. I think um, when your passion and your life's work kind of come together. So when I became a formal teacher, when I wasn't teaching like, <laughs> like many people do, teaching their teddy bears and what have you, I was mainly a kindergarten teacher for about 18 years and um, loved every single moment of that. Still the highlight of my life, truly, to watch little ones um, unlock the code and learn to read. It was very um, empowering to see kids do that and to see how they felt about becoming readers. Um, While I was uh, in public schools, I was also a reading specialist, and I was a district data coordinator. And in that process, um, I became also a distinguished educator for the state of Pennsylvania. Um, distinguished educators were um, educators with experience uh, who would go into and support schools that were at risk. Um, mainly they were um, former superintendents or curriculum directors. I was one of only two teachers that was selected in the state for that. It was quite an honor a number of years ago and to um, serve in that role and also to learn from the colleagues that I had the opportunity to learn from. It was an incredible experience. So I was granted a leave of absence for three years. So there I was, um, kind of left home and was working uh, across the state with the groups of uh, distinguished educators uh, doing uh, reviews and then spent embedded in uh, school district for nearly two years to support them as they move forward to, you know, improving literacy outcomes for kids. I returned to uh, the school district, but the state kind of pulled me <laughs> back mm-hmm. in. Um, and um, I was asked to interview potential other distinguished educators and ended up um, doing that beside the executive director of Patton. Um, Patton is the Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistance Network. Patton is a professional development arm for the Bureau of Special Education and the Department of Education in Pennsylvania. Um, and so um, I serve as a state lead for literacy in that initiative. Um, certainly, we support initiatives across, you know, um, deaf, hard of hearing, autism, math, you name it, soup to nuts. So I've been there almost, which is hard to believe, um, 15 years. And I've been mm. the state lead for seven years now. And again, that has gone really, really quickly. 
But um, in addition to, I was talking to you about my <laughs> six grandkids, in addition to my <clears throat> obsession with my family, I really, um, my life really is revolved around my family and literacy. It truly never really feels like work. Um, I also have the honor of serving as the president of the Reading League Pennsylvania and on their editorial board and um, a great honor as well to be an adjunct professor at the Mount St. Joseph University, the Mount St. Joseph <laughs> University, and the doctoral program and the master's program and the reading science program. And in addition, I do do some consulting across the country as well. So um, I'm busy, but, um, yes. you know, it's a life of purpose. And I think that's what we all hope that we have. And so I feel very, very, very fortunate um, to be a part of this literacy community, which is so supportive. Um, it's big, but it's also very small. So I know in all the study and the things that you that you research and share with others, the, the thing you're very interested in right now is spelling. And so this is our the culmination to our spelling series. And we're going to talk specifically today about spelling assessment and how to help that guide instruction. But let's let's lay the foundation a bit in case someone has not heard the other episodes in this series and start by just kind of talking a little bit about the complexity of English spelling. And let's start by by defining morphophonemic, which is how we describe English spelling. I think um, some people think English spelling is crazy because we don't have a one-to-one -one match for every sound, but English isn't supposed to work that way. So yeah. can you talk to us about what morphophonemic means? Yeah, I love that word, actually. It's such a rich word. It's like being word conscious, right? It's so good mm -hmm. to have that word in your mouth. In the simplest terms, it means that our written language, our English orthography or spelling is based on both meaningful units and speech sound units. So um, both of those are contributing to how we spell. But I, what's so rich and robust about our language and makes it so logical uh, and predictable really is also the marrying of speech sounds and meaning, right? So if you look at the term morphophonemic and we break it into its morphemes, it's unlocking not only how we will pronounce it, but also what it means, which I think is so wonderful about our language being so rich. So morpho, meaning form or structure, those meaningful units. Of course, phony, meaning those individual speech sounds. And then the IC, the suffix is telling us it's an adjective that's describing how those things are related. So it kind of, um, it's, it's a perfect word to describe our English orthography because it unlocks it right there when you know about the speech sounds and the morpheme. So for me, that's morphophonemic. So what, what would you say would be the different factors that influence English spelling? Well, throughout this um, podcast, I'm going to refer back to a number of researchers and uh, whose shoulders we all stand on. For example, Dr. Motes has been um, long interested in spelling and doing research on spelling. Rebecca Treeman would be another researcher. I would always look to their research. Uh, Suzanne Carricker's research as well, Virginia Berninger's. But um, when I think about spelling and why it's logical, it's not crazy, right? We think about the influence of basically five principles. And again, uh, if you're a letters trainer, these would not be <laughs> unusual to you. So for example, a language of origin. So what's so wonderful about our language is our written language represents the influences over time of other languages. So depending on, in some cases, where the word originated from, and maybe how it's changed some, how it's been adopted through other languages, um, will influence how we spell and or how we pronounce it. So just in terms of like quick examples, going back to morphophonemic, um, I know from the PH spelling uh, and the 
that there's a Greek origin to those words. So I'm not calling it more po, <laughs> uh, po nemic because I know the influence of Greek there is going to indicate the pronunciation of the pH is going to be a f. So it's, it's a signal to me, its origin. Um, another example that's used often is the spelling ch. Um, if it comes, uh, the word comes from Anglo-Saxon, we're going to pronounce it with a ch, like a church. And if it has a French influence, like chef, we're going to have the sh, and then back to our Greek friends. Um, if it has a Greek origin, it's going to be pronounced like chlorophyll. So it's not crazy. And I think that's what makes it so rich and wonderful to talk about our language. And kids absolutely love hearing and be, being like these word detectives, figuring out, oh, that's why. And I love hearing them say like, oh, I know why. That's because it's a Greek word. That's why I pronounce it that way. So language of origin will have an influence for sure. And then, of course, we map um, speech to print. You know, we map. That's why the alphabet was created to represent language permanently. Right. And so back to that morphophonemic, if we think about the map between phonemes and graphemes, especially when we're spelling and then the reciprocal from um, graphemes to phonemes when we're reading, this relationship between speech sounds and the graphemes, the phonemes, the speech sounds, the individual speech sounds and the graphemes, which are the letters of letter groups that represent those phonemes. So we spell in that way too. Um, position matters um, where in a, a word the sound falls. Um, so for example, today it's raining <laughs> in Pennsylvania. And so my long A, because it's in the middle of the syllable, is going to be spelled with an A-I. Um, or if it was be at the beginning of the syllable, it would be an A-I as well. But if I'm hoping for a ray of sunshine <laughs> today, um, that long A is going to be spelled uh, with an A-Y because it's position. So the position matters. And so I think that's so important, again, to share all these all this richness with students so that they understand it as well. And it makes sense to them. Of course, back to our word morphophonemic um, and the meaningful units, we spell by meaning as well. Especially, We always spell by meaning, but um, those combining forms of meanings that we're adding them become more complex as we go up to the grade levels. And um, we want to be helping kids from the very beginning, from kindergarten. I was teaching my students when um, if it was cat and then we had this yes, I want you to be able to decode it and pronounce it, but you know, that S, they both have meaning. Um, both of those morphemes, but that S represents more than one. So we want to start that right from the beginning, showing kids, basically, maybe I wouldn't be using the word morphophonemic, or maybe I would, because if kids can learn Tyrannosaurus Rex, they can <laughs> learn morphophonemic. <laughs> so our language is morphophonemic, and uh, we spell by both meaning and sound. And so um, meaning, morphology is really critically important, and um, word study beyond basic phonics is really critical for both decoding and encoding spelling. Um, so I think I, I think I got them all. I got, oh no, orthographic conventions. I missed that one. Um, so, um, scribes many years ago when we were moving from spoken language to written language, uh, put some constraints on, on, um, letters. Um, I think probably everybody, I'll just speak for myself, but when I learned why, you know, why is give and love and have, you know, no English word ends in D, it like, whoosh, kind of, I was like, oh my gosh. You know, so these conventions and it also influenced like the syllable types. So, yeah, those five principles really. And again, that I refer back to, of course, um, Dr. Moat's work uh, in speech to print and in letters where those are highlighted as well. So it's not, you know, my research. It's certainly others. 
I like the way you talked about how we can tell our students, even if we choose or, or not choose to use the word morphophonemic, but just when they're spelling to, to tell them, sometimes we spell for sound and sometimes we spell for meaning. And this ED at the end, even though it says jumped, we're going to use an ED because that means that it already happened. I never really thought about explicitly saying that to kids, but that makes a lot of sense. Even in the early grades, you can do that. Yeah, and you make a perfect example there. And one I use often in training with teachers and with students um, that morphemes have stable spellings. Um, they are pointing to meaning. So um, if I'm thinking about writing, I'm a student, and I'm thinking about something that happened in the past, I know I need to use the ED spelling for that morpheme. But ED is a perfect example of our morphophonemic language and one I use often as well. Wanted, landed. Um, so I think those are perfect examples of morphophonemic. The morphemes remain a stable spelling. The ED is pointing us in the direction that's happened in the past. But these words are showing us how sound and meaning are working together to influence it. So, and the thing is, and I'll speak for myself, um, and I think many others, um, we didn't necessarily learn about our own language in, um, you know, our graduate work or undergraduate work. Um, so we cannot teach what we do not know, right? So the more we know as an educator about our language, the better we can um, teach our students. Right. I think at the end, I'll make sure to get some references for you for places teachers can learn about that. Because like you said, there just usually isn't room made for this in teacher training. We've, we've kind of touched on this again, but I think we can never define them enough for people who are new to this. It took me a while to grasp all of them. So let's define phonology, orthography, and morphology. And we might as well do etymology as well. Okay, so phonology is the speech sound systems of a language. And so it um, is how we can sequence, combine uh, phonemes within a language, right? So that's, a, if we're thinking specifically phonology, it's a study of that, right? Okay. So in our language, um, there is always a little bit of um, discussion around how many phonemes in our language, but the general consensus is there are 44 phonemes in our English language, and they can be represented in orthography um, more than 250 ways. Right. So that's what makes our language so complex and rich. So an orthography is um, how a written system is represented. The language is represented in, in written language. Right. So ortho back to <laughs> our morphemes, ortho meaning straight and graph meaning, you know, writing. So it's correct or straight writing, how the speech sounds are correctly um, written in language. Right. So we know there, especially with our vowels, are often many ways, especially our long vowels, many ways we can spell them. But we have a correct way we spell them in our language. And so um, that's orthography. And we think about orthography and spelling, you know, pretty much um, synonymously encoding. Morphology, again, back to those meaningful units within a language. And etymology, where did the word originate from? So all of these are influencing um, how we spell. We need to teach all all parts, all lenses of language, right? So we didn't mention um, semantics here, meaning, right? <clears throat> we didn't mention, mention syntax, the part of speech. Like, so the more a student knows about a word, how it's spoken, how it's written, what its meaningful parts are, where it came from, it's part of speech, um, it's meaning, it's bonding all these things together. And so that's why we not we never want to teach in isolation. All these things are interdependent and integrated. The more a student knows about a word in its language lenses, the more accurately and quickly they will access it for both reading and for spelling. 
So um, we really, language is literacy and literacy is language. I don't know who said that, but, you know, give them credit, whoever you are out there, because it truly is that they're reciprocal, you know, literacy rests on language. So we want to be teaching all those language systems. And of course, um, we want to be teaching them in a structured literacy way. I think, you know, we talked about how it's important for teachers to have an understanding of each of these. And of course, it's going to grow. It's not like, okay, now I know everything there is to know about one of these areas, particularly morphology, that's going to, you're never going to be done learning morphology. There's no. an ending to, to learning spelling patterns mostly, um, although there's still some things that you might still be learning. But when teachers understand all these areas, then they can help their students understand why we spell something a certain way versus telling them to memorize spelling. So that's really right. what it's all about, right? Right. Versus saying, you know, I don't know why I spell that way. English is crazy, right? Yeah. Well, let's move into... Um, spelling assessment. And when teachers really have an understanding of phonology, orthography, morphology, or at least a baseline understanding, they can look at an assessment and see what types of errors students are making and where to go next. So let's walk through that. First of mm -hmm. all, um, could you define qualitative spelling inventory? Yep. So um, a qualitative spelling inventory is like a, is a list of spelling items that rank from um, least complex to most complex, like CVCs to derivational suffix at the end in a very intentional way uh, where you're sampling a student's uh, knowledge of that phonics pattern. A word um, example is given. Uh, I say the word, you say the word, I want that word in your mouth. Um, I provide a sentence, to, you know, nested into meaning. And then basically I just stop talking and uh, the students spell. So it's a very, very, very powerful tool that I think is uh, severely underutilized across the country. Dr. Motes, I believe, has said this. I'm pretty sure it's her. It said uh, spelling is visible language. It's language written down. Um, it's telling me what students know about language around that particular pattern, uh, that phonics pattern, that encoding pattern I've asked kids to spell. It doesn't take long to um, administer, mm, you know, maybe 10 minutes. Um, it can be done whole group. You want to make sure kids aren't <laughs> copying from each other paper, um, a pencil without an eraser. You want to have that first uh, attempt, uh, be aware of that, or a pen. And um, the power really is in the analysis. Um, so I always say, you know, when you're collecting data, you want to be doing something with it. So I, the schools I have the honor of working with in Pennsylvania and across the country, I strongly recommend that they um, do a spelling inventory with every single student when they do their typical universal screening. Okay. So, takes about 10 minutes. It's going to give you an added lens. It's a way to sample students' um, understanding of language, honestly, through phonology, orthography, and meaning, because you're offering that through a sentence. And then to analyze that, to look for patterns, for error patterns, um, so that it can form your instruction intervention. It could be at the individual student level. It could be in small groups. It could be whole group. And it could give you information back about your whole system, about your curriculum, or and or your instruction. So it's a very, very powerful tool. Um, the one I default to, of course, is Dr. Moat's uh, letters survey. Okay. It is copyrighted. So um, that if you're a letters trainer, certainly you have access to that. The word survey developmental spelling inventory is another um, spelling inventory that I've used with schools. Um, the word survey program, um, not explicit, not systematic, but uh, enough, certainly. Um, but however, the spelling inventory is is fine. So those are two, and that one is um, free. 
and falls very similar when you look at, you know, a spelling inventory that falls at scope and sequence from least complex to most. Yes, th those would be two examples. So let's go back a minute. So let's say um, I'm a first grade teacher and I'm doing, I'm doing like dibbles or I'm doing Acadians three times a year. Would you say also that each of those times that I'm pulling students individually to do those assessments, I would just do one spelling inventory to the whole class so that it's just done? You would do one spelling inventory. Yeah, one spelling inventory to the whole class. It's a whole class administration. So the administration is, is really very brief. It's not very long. There's so much power in the analysis, especially if you have the honor of being a coach or a consultant or a reading specialist working with a group or you're a teacher working in your own team. When you're analyzing them with knowledge, um, it's so powerful, especially when you're looking for trends um, in your classroom and across classrooms. I've seen, we've, we've un uncovered lots of, lots of things by looking at spelling inventories at all from individual classroom um, grade level in the school that are informing our next steps because it is language written down. If you can spell a word, you can read a word, but the encoding is going to show me what you know about language and it's permanent. I can look at it later. I can use it to inform me where the reading is in the moment. Right. And so um, it's just, it's such a powerful tool that I think is so underutilized um, and can result in really deep professional learning for educators around language, but also most importantly, changes in instruction that have better outcomes for kids because that's why we all get up in the morning, right? Yeah. yeah. So back to the, so I'm thinking about, you know, you're giving the, you're giving the um, spelling inventory and you're telling your students, this is, um, this is just for me to see how much you know about spelling. Just do your very best. I'm not going to yeah. grade it. Yeah. And the idea yeah. of having them, if you try something and you don't like it, just draw a line through it so I can still read it and write your, write your final spelling, because I want to see all the things that are happening in your brain. Yep. Um, I had not thought about that before, about having them not erased, but that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but I can see a teacher looking at those and saying, okay, I already have, I already know what I'm doing in my whole class or small group phonics and dictation. How does, how do the results of my spelling inventory carry over to what I'm already doing? How do I yeah, connect they, that? They 100% do. You <laughs> can put these spelling inventories out in the array and kind of like, okay, Who's, who's got some strengths here with language and who doesn't? You can tell immediately what they need. So let me give you an example from the lens of like way up here. All right, so the school um, was moving towards the science of reading and engaged in practices that were related to that and had purchased programs that were related to that as well. So when we looked, and this is second grade, when we looked at their spelling inventory results across the grades, because we started seeing this pattern over and over and over again, kids spelling, um, phonetically, but not with the correct um, graphemes. So okay. they were representing each of the phoneme sounds in sequence, which we want, of course, um, with a grapheme. But oftentimes, especially with the long vowels, they were using a letter name to represent a letter sound. And that's not unusual, right? So goat was G-O-T, stone was S-E-O-N, right? So what it told us when we aligned, when we looked at their scope and sequence is you're you're doing a good job with the phonemes. Kids are able to segment and understand that we have to represent a phoneme with a grapheme. However, it's pretty apparent that either the curriculum that you're using and or the instruction is not happening or not happening enough with practice in order for kids to store those spellings for this word in memory. Then it, when you kept seeing that pattern over and over and over again, all right, that's a curriculum instructional okay. issue that's happening at that grade level. If it was happening in one classroom, 
we'd say, okay, what's happening here? What's the makeup of the kids this year? You know, that, that happens, you know, every year we have different students, but, and also if I see a pattern of kids making errors on something that's been taught and many in my classroom are having that error, will I waste my precious time teaching that in small group? Yes or no? And I, I always say, them, no, this is something that needs to be retaught effectively and practiced practice gap there um, in whole group um, oh these kids are having problems with digraphs yet I've taught that it's a small group oh I'm gonna pull them for direct instruction here it's visible I don't have to think what do I need to do it's right staring me in the face but it can inform school grade level classroom small groups individual level it's one of the most powerful tools out there I think that's not being used I seriously have been obsessed with them a little bit because I just think there's so much power in that analysis but also having those conversations with teachers analyzing them with teachers is a very rich robust professional learning experience so um yeah I don't know I think I went way off there so no 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 you're good so when you talk about system-wise like um you're looking and you're seeing, like you said, like across the grade level, wow, they're, they're not spelling long vowels or just using a, let, uh, a single um, vowel. And so that informs your tier one instruction, like something, we need a meeting to talk about what we can do to improve this. Yeah. So I, I understand that. What do you think is happening? You know, ask them, they know, right? Yeah. Where I, where I have a few questions more is when it comes all the way down to the individual students. So let's say I have, um, you know, a group of students. Um, I may be differentiating my foundational skills and I've got a group that's doing long vowel teams. Um, but I have a child who can read that really well, but it looks like, but then it looks like, um, you know, we're pretty far in the long vowels, but they're still mixing up A-I-A-Y, which I'm seeing on the assessment. Like what, how do I handle that? Like, um, having that child. Well, that's something that always goes back to explicitly teaching that and then, um, practicing that, um, it might mean reading lists of words that have the A-I-A-Y pattern, um, minimal pairs so that we're really making them pay attention. Um, my decodable text that I would select, maybe they can read it and you've seen them read it, but they need repeated practice back to share statistical, right? They need um, lots of opportunities to see it, read it, spell it, so that it forms uh, that high quality lexical representation, uh, that mental orthographic image that's stored in memory for that word. So for how we're spelling the long A in that particular word. So direct explicit instruction, um, uh, practice through word chaining, word list, decodable text, of course, dictation. You know, if I was dictating, if I was saying rain, you know, I would uh, remind the student that where do you hear that long A sound? Oh, it's in the middle of a syllable. How do we spell, you know, because, you know, how do we spell that, right? Right? We're going to spell it with an AI it, because I would have previously taught, you know, that positional. So I'm linking my dictation to. So um, that's how I, you know, that's how I would start with that student. What about um, when kids so often spelling kind of lags behind reading? So I'm, yes. I'm doing, a, I'm doing my small groups and I'm teaching, let's say, you know, IGH or whatever else. And then they're spelling that in our dictation but um, there's some earlier skills they're missing, but only one is missing them. Like practically speaking, how do I fit in that instruction, I guess? Well, I think that's always the million dollar question, but I, you know, we can't, these skills are essential. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard the term like Swiss cheese kids, right? Mm -hmm. We've got these holes 
um, we have to go back and, and teach, right, that. So if it's an individual student, um, you know, in small group, uh, it might be a, a group of one or pull in another student who is skilled at that so the student isn't feeling so isolated, right? But you, you have to go back and teach those things. They, they will show up later. There's, and especially when they start getting into multisyllabic words, we want them to have, you know, very high quality lexical representations of these words to have them stored in memory. I think we've all, I've done this, maybe you have, I don't know, ever spelled a word and you write it down and then you look at it and go, that doesn't look right, right? I always think that's so cool when that happens because it's like, it's not jiving with the stored memory you have for it. And you're looking at, there's something not right here, right? So. Um, we want kids having these strong represent lexical representations so that um, they can use them in reading and spelling because we know that people judge your writing by your spelling. If you are not spelling accurately on a job application yeah. or it's going to, it's going to impact you. So spelling does have an impact on your life and it's going to help our reading and it's going to help our writing. So why aren't we doing it? <laughs> Yes, for sure. Well, I'm going to summarize some of the things we talked about. So we okay. initially talked about the complexity of the English language, morphology, orthography, morphology, etymology, and why it's important for teachers to find a way to keep learning about that so they can communicate that to their students so that their students understand that there's reasons for how we spell certain words. And when we give a, a qualitative spelling inventory, maybe three times a year, and we compare scores across the school, the grade level, we can see if our tier one instruction is working for spelling, and if not, we, we need to figure out some holes. Would you say that it would be make sense to follow up with the diagnostic? Yes, um, in some cases, yes, especially when uh, some of the spelling that you can see um, really, that's what I love about it. You can look at a spelling inventory that's, you know, very discrepant and you can look right away. Okay, we need to do a phonics screener. We need to do a, you know, phonemic awareness assessment. Um, you know, we need to do spelling, you know, where, where are they? Can they spell letter names? Like, because maybe they're that far back, maybe they're not even there yet. So yes, it's really, it's a diagnostic, it's, it's a tool that can be used in so many ways. Um, it can be used summatively to look at at the end of the year, like how did, and you can see the progression, which is so cool um, because it's visible language. Um, it can be a formative tool because it's informing tier one, tier two, tier three, and certainly diagnostically it's pointing us in the direction, oh, they know that maybe in their pre-alphabetic phase um, of Aries word reading, they're representing the first sound and the last sound, but we don't see any internal. So we know we need to focus on segmenting for sure to make sure they can segment. And then we need to, to focus on phoning, graphing, mapping. It's like right staring in front of me, what I need to do as a teacher. How often does that happen? Okay. So many times we're trying to, it's like a puzzle. It's a mystery. We're trying to figure it out. Uh-uh, that was spelling right there in front of you, what you need to do. And also, as a, it's a good reminder to teachers that um, just because you may have taught it, not all the students have mastered it. Right. So right. And you have to reteach in some cases. And then also, um, I think this power of a spelling inventory is really important for third grade and up. Mm -hmm. I know when I, I started teaching, I taught third, fourth, and fifth grade in a combination classroom. And I did not know, I knew very, very little about English spelling. I was a good speller, but I never really thought about why words were spelled that way. And... So when I had students who were in third grade, but spelling a word with a consonant E instead of a vowel team, I didn't even know where to go. Like, and I just kind of just kept plodding along thinking, well, we'll have our weekly spelling lists. But to realize for those older grades that this, you've got you've to tackle this because it's not yeah. going to get better without yeah. explicit focused instruction for that particular child, whatever, however you decide to do it. Like if you say, you know, 10 minutes a day, I'm, I'm reserving for working with kids who are 
who need this. Sometimes they just need to be told. Like they yes. may have never been, mm-hmm. it may have never been explained to them. Yeah. Oh, I think we all have the experience with kids, kids saying when um, you're working with them, why didn't anyone teach me this before? Like, I don't understand. You know I, mean? I think we've all yeah. experienced that. Right. Yeah. So the, the inventory can help us see where the holes are and yes, help us sure. make a plan. Without a doubt. And help you make a plan. And um, certainly if you're having like a watcher or adventure or, or whatever during your win time, that's what many people call it, what I need time. Um, we can, um, you know, share students and, and work on those skills and, and then everyone gets what they need. Because certainly if they're great spellers and great at decoding, we want to extend their learning to this. You know, we want to make sure that we're growing all kids. Yes. So you mentioned that um, we talked about how teachers really need to educate themselves on this. What What are some mm-hmm. favorite resources that you have for teachers? Um, oh my gosh! Uh, well, well, you have your wakelet, but we'll, yeah, no, no, we do have that. But no, no. <laughs> was it going to talk about me? Um, certainly, Louisa Moses' speech to print um, yep. is you know it's seminal text. Um, um, Unlocking literacy from Marsha Henry, an outstanding mm-hmm. book. Um, the logic of English from, and I really don't know how to pronounce her name. I, I, think, I, it's I think it's okay, Denise Ide. I think it's Denise Ide. I think. Uh-huh. There. Yep. Um, Beginning to spell Rebecca Treeman's. I have Lynn Stone spelling for life. Uh, Louise Spear Swirling has a great book on structured literacy, and Louisa did a chapter in that on spelling, uh, but yes, also the other language systems, and actually patented a book study of that. So I'll give a little plug there. That's recorded and curated. Um, so those are pretty much some default ones if you want to start your spelling journey. Um, I love, you know, like kind of like David Crystal spell it out, like why are words? I don't know that one either. Yeah. Cool. And like the ABCs of um, spelling and all their tricks, you know, that yep. reference mm-hmm. book. And um, I don't know. I have a whole bunch downstairs, but these are ones that I kind of run to. And certainly I look at um, um, research. I was just reading research again last night, and it was um, confirming um, how um, when a student has a strong lexical representation, it there's evidence for um, that it in- increases their reading speed, right? And we know we want to be fluent so that we can focus on the meaning. So, um, you know, there's ample research out there and has been for decades about the importance of spelling as a linguistic skill that can benefit Again, all those language systems, <laughs> we're not teaching it in isolation, um, but it seems to be um, in this, you know, new age that it seems to be old. It's not. It's, yeah. that, you know, it's really should be taught. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Um, and before we go, I just want to um, give you a minute or two to talk about Patton's Literacy Conference. I don't know if that's yeah. what you call it, but yeah, I, it's... So nice um, I've, I've always been so impressed by the, the videos that you guys put out on YouTube. And I think mm-hmm. it, it's free, right? Always it is free? free. Yes, it is free. And- uh-huh. So um, it's coming up and we have over 80 presenters um, again. And um, the registration is going to be up February 28th on the patent, um, uh, patent.net. So www.patent.net. There'll be lots of banners there to, to point you in the right direction. Um, it's held every two years, um, absolutely 100% free for anyone in the entire world. So um, you do have to have a patent account. It's just you just have to do that. Um, but again, creating the account is free. So we're really, really honored. Our keynote speakers this year are Holly Lane uh, and Kareem Weaver. And um, Dr. Anita Archer has always been oh, a big yes. part of the it's always the end note because she, as everyone knows, she's a master teacher and the consummate professional, but she truly does look at every single presentation and then 
kind of synthesizes those and summarizes our, our um, symposium. So, but we have, it's a wonderful mix of who's who it really is. The who's who of uh, literacy world, like the heavy hitters, um, but also lots of practitioners, like, because of course we always want to be rested on the foundation of evidence and research and keep current with that, right? But we also have to translate that evidence and we need to hear voices from the teachers who are doing it every day, translating that into practice. Because when I was a kindergarten teacher and I still really consider myself a kindergarten teacher, I wanted to hear from other kindergarten teachers, like, how are you doing that? You know, tell me, I want to see it. Teacher voices are so essential to this process and we honor those at Patton along with the researchers. Well, thank you so much for all the things that you have done and continue to do for teachers everywhere. It's my honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for this time and to be with you. After I pressed stop, Pam and I realized that we had not given the dates for the upcoming patent conference. So that will be June 11th through 13th, 2024. If you're listening to this episode after that date, be sure to check Patton's YouTube channel where they have recordings of previous symposiums. I also want to say that in this episode, we talked very high level about the power of a spelling inventory, but if you'd like to know more specifics about how to really dial into the results and know exactly what you need to teach, I would check out a presentation that Dr. Kastner co-shared. Um, it's called Spelling Visible Language to Inform Instruction and Intervention, and it's about an hour long and it's on YouTube. So, so I'll link to that in the show notes for today's episode. Speaking of show notes, you can find them at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 155. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.